Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Every evening we listen to them talk. On radio. Don't you listen to the radio? One of these nights. Tonight. All right, let's hear it. Where's the radio? One of these J-talking nights. J-talking with Bradley J. You're going to call up Bradley J now. Hello? Mm, and tell him why you're right. Hello? Who is calling? Can you hear me? Now everybody's calling. The fever is high. This is now your chance to discourse and more. Thank you. Trying to have a conversation. Yeah, Jay's got his problems and he's got desires. But you got a few of your own. WBZ News Radio 1030. You're Jay talking. We're live midnight to five. With us is Steve Luxenberg. That's L-U-X-E-N, like Nancy B-E-R-G. I give you the spelling because you're probably going to want to buy this book. He's the author of Separate, Story of Plessy versus Ferguson and America's Journey from Slavery to Segregation. It's more about, it's more than about the court case, though. Correct, Steve? There's a lot more. A lot more than that, yes. Can you a, lot, talk- a lot of the story is takes place long before the court case. Can you tell me why you used in the uh, title just the word separate and not the equal part? You're, you're making some sort of statement there. Well, you know, one-word titles catch your attention, so partly it's that. But I think we're talking about the separate part and not the equal part. Uh, and I didn't want the book to seem like it was, you know, the same old, same old. Uh, we know the story of separate but equal, but we don't know the story of separate. All right. Can you paint a picture for me of what it was like before in, in antebellum U.S. Uh, with regard to being an, a, a black person? What was the, the world of slavery really like? Well, antebellum, for those listeners out there, means before the Civil War. And in the South, of course, you had the system of slavery in which three to four million uh, people of color were in slavery. They were the property of somebody else. And we know the story of how uh, people were mistreated, uh, how they were uh, made to do uh, tasks in the field, made to do... Sometimes there were sexual relations between master and slave. In the North, where there were very few people of color, relatively, in Massachusetts, for example, in 1840, 1% of the population was, were, were people of color. They were free, but they were a very small percentage. Uh, in the South, of course, you had an entirely different uh, situation. In, in some states, the number of people in slavery were greater than the number of people who were white and Slavery wasn't everywhere, let's be clear about that. There were many people who were not involved in the system of slavery in the South, but on, on these large farms and other places, uh, that's where it was. How did folks justify slavery? And these are very basic questions, but how did they? Did they just feel that the, the, this race was an inferior race? Did they just think, well, you know what, we have the power and you don't, too bad? How did they just? I think that's it? a very that's a very complicated question because I don't think that you can talk about people in a general way because they didn't hold all those opinions that that people had. 
And my book is not as good on slavery as some other books. It's better on, on the roots of racial separation. But generally, some people thought, uh, some white people thought that blacks were inferior. Some white people thought that uh, it was a system uh, that, it was an economic system. I mean, they didn't think about the morality of it, or at least they didn't justify it on on the grounds of inferiority. Uh, but, you know, the system uh, that existed at the time, uh, it was the only way. Some people said, well, how else are we going to clear our crops? Other than in this climate, we need to have slave labor. You people in the north, it's easy for you to say that you can do without slave labor because you don't have the kind of conditions of farming that we have. Um, those are some of the arguments. All right. We will work our way to the, the court case and, and segregation. But I'm curious about in 1863, Emancipation Proclamation, did anything happen right away? What, what, what was the immediate result of that? Well, the Emancipation Proclamation is an, is an amazingly uh, important document, but it's also somewhat misunderstood. Uh, it was a document that Lincoln in promulgating, uh, it, did, it freed the enslaved people in the states in rebellion. So in Kentucky, for example, Kentucky was not part of the Confederacy. So you have this anomaly in which suddenly the people, the, the, the enslaved people in the state to the south are free, but in Kentucky they aren't. And it was chaotic. In, in Louisiana, it was even more chaotic because the original draft of the Emancipation Proclamation did not make an exception for New Orleans and the counties, the parishes, as, they, as they're called in Louisiana, along the Mississippi River. But Lincoln decided that he was not going to free the slaves in, in New Orleans or those counties, and his, his, one of his cabinet members warned him that he should not do this, that it would be chaotic. But he was trying to be consistent in a military sense, and since he was arguing that he wasn't going to allow the Confederacy, the Confederacy and the Confederate Army to take advantage of the dominion that they had over people in slavery, he was going to free them where it was going to hurt the Union Army in a military sense. He, he claimed consistently he wasn't doing it uh, in a moral sense. He wasn't doing it to end slavery. He was doing it to prevent the use of military power and drawing on the, on the labor of slaves. So you had chaos. Uh, in, in New Orleans, there were uh, people in slavery who were f uh, fleeing their, their uh, enslaved conditions, and they were flooding into New Orleans. And, it was, and, and the response of the army was to arrest not just them, but the free people of color who were living in New Orleans and who, whose skin color said, well, you know, I can be arrested because I look like the, some of the slaves. <laughs> and people were being thrown in jail who had never been in slavery. Uh, so it was a chaotic situation. So civil war occurs, it's over, and the pro-slavery Democrats are out of power, but pretty quickly they regain power in the southern legislatures using these insurgent paramilitary groups, I guess, White League and Red Shirts, and this is how you started to get these, these Jim Crow laws in the states, correct? Well, it's... it's uh... Jim Crow is a term that uh, first originates in the state of Massachusetts in 1838. Uh, the first separate car on a railroad, this is not a motor car, obviously, but a railroad car, 
occurs in the state of Massachusetts, where there are eight new passenger railroads, railroad lines operating uh, out of the, the, the sta- in the state at the dawn of the passenger railroad age. Only three out of the eight decide to use separate cars. But the first use that I could find of the term Jim Crow to apply to a railroad car was in the Salem Gazette of October 12, 1838. Uh, Amazing thing to me to to have this pop up in my digital digging through newspaper databases. And I, of course, was curious as to how that could be. Now, we know that the Jim Crow minstrel shows were very popular in New England in the 1830s. There was one man in particular who was probably the best known of them, Thomas Dartmouth Rice. And it, it, it seems to me that from reading the newspapers that Jim Crow was a phrase that newspaper editors began to apply to a lot of situations. The song that Rice would sing was, Every Time I Jump Jim Crow, and that idea of jump Jim Crow it was used to apply to politicians who, in, in our age, we would say they were flip-flopping. They were changing their mind. They were on one side of the issue one day and on the other side of the issue the next. Well, it didn't seem like a very big leap to apply it to the to the railroad car as well. But you asked about uh, after the Civil War, you know, there's, there's these three constitutional amendments. Let's lay them out very quickly. The 13th, which abolishes slavery. The 14th, which establishes equal protection under the laws. And the 15th, which establishes voting rights for black men, not black women or, of course, white women, but black men. Now, these, these three amendments are a revolution in the Constitution because the, the original Constitution has slavery embedded in it in the three-fifths clause that was a compromise to give the South a little bit more political power for all those people who were living there, but not regard them as one full person. Um, there's a reaction to the enactment of these amendments and to the three civil rights laws. There are three civil rights laws enacted in the 1860s and 70s. Charles Sumner of Massachusetts is, is the, one of the engines behind the enactments of these laws. And the whites in the South who have lost political power, they have lost economic power, uh, the, it gives rise to the, to the white supremacist movements that you referred to. The Ku Klux was mostly referred to as the Ku Klux without the Klan part, is born in Tennessee in 1867. It spreads to North Carolina and quickly to other places in the South. And it's the use of this violence and intimidation of the Ku Klux and the other white supremacist groups to try to regain some of that political and economic power that they've lost. Confederates, especially the high-ranking Confederates and those in the government, they were prohibited by law from voting for a time. And you can imagine how they felt having lost the war. Now they've lost their political power. And that creates fear and anger, and and they act on it. If we could start to get into the case can you give me some some detailed background on it the the plessy versus ferguson is homer plessy versus judge ferguson and it didn't this was actually a test case this was set up kind of like the rosa parks situation right uh it was a test case and uh a lot of people when they hear plessy versus ferguson they immediately click into uh, separate but equal it's synonymous with that but they don't know much about it and I didn't know much about it. For example, when I ask people, and I often give talks, and I say, who was Homer Plessy? And they think he was probably a former slave, and he's in a quest for his rights. But in fact, Plessy was, was not born into slavery in 1863 in New Orleans. His parents weren't slaves. His grandparents weren't slaves. He had to go back to a great-grandmother on his mother's side to find somebody who was in slavery, and 
she was freed in 1779. So this is a, this is a, comes from a group of mixed race, often French speaking Creoles in New Orleans. Creoles means native born, and they are a group that has been agitating for their rights for about a century, ever since the American takeover of 1803. There are inflection points throughout the century where, for various reasons, they petition, they meet with officials, they want their rights. And I describe them in the book as a sandwiched layer between, in the antebellum period, between the white New Orleans uh, segment and the enslaved segment. Because they're not in slavery, but they don't have the full rights that that, uh, that the white population does. But over the course of that century, they become wealthier, they become more educated, and as I say in the book, I don't think this case could have come out of Charleston or Savannah or Atlanta because there hasn't been enough time has passed since the end of the Civil War for people who had once been in slavery to accumulate the kind of wealth and education that you would need to organize and bring this kind of case. But the, the French-picking Creoles do have that wealth and organization, And in 1890, after the Louisiana legislature passes a separate railroad car act mandating, not a company policy like in Massachusetts in the 1830s, mandating that equal but separate accommodations for white and colored passengers uh, be uh, used in operating the railroads, that this committee brings the case. And they, they have Plessy as a volunteer, and they arrange his arrest. The railroad is in on it because... They don't want to run a separate car and that extra expense that they don't have to. And that sets up the case. So they chose Homer Plessy, very light-skinned, one-eighth black octoroon, as, as you, what those kind of folks are called. And why do they choose a particularly light-skinned person? That was a choice. What was the strategy there? It was a, leg- it was a legal strategy. Uh, some people would say not a very good legal strategy, but it was a strategy. Uh, they they argued to the court that he, not that I like using percentages to describe any human being, but that they argued that he was one-eighth black. In fact, he wasn't one-eighth black. I don't think the lawyers really knew what he was, and they didn't care because the closer he was to white, the better it supported their argument that here was a man who could pass for white. He was fair-skinned enough, as I write in the book, to cause confusion, and it would make uh, it difficult for a conductor walking down a railroad car, they would argue, how is the conductor supposed to separate the passengers if you couldn't tell the whites from the blacks or the blacks from the whites? So part of this was uh, about was lo- thinking. part of this was about logistics. Part of it was, um, and you know, plus he, he he really doesn't become involved in the case further than being than, than the arrest that's created to create the case. Um, so he is uh, they they don't want they don't want him to spend much time in jail. Because if you're a volunteer, you're not volunteering to be in jail for the length of a, a, court, a court case. Right. So they engineer it so that he gets out of jail. And then they have to figure out a strategy to not get him convicted. Because if he's convicted and he goes to jail, and they can bring the case as a habeas corpus case, that is, the illegal holding of a body, um, then plus he has to be in jail while they're making the appeal. So they, they manipulate the case so that they can do it as an error in the lower ju- uh, lower court judge's ruling on whether the, the uh, Louisiana statute is constitutional. And that's the, the basis on which the case goes to the Supreme Court. So, separate but equal is justified because separate, they say separate didn't automatically imply inferior, correct? That's 
one of the, the arguments and the other argument is is that if we could provide equality, then it applies to the races equally. It's it's a form of what some lawyers would call the neutral law. So let's think of trespassing, which was often used to stop sit-ins. You're trespassing in this restaurant. You could argue that it's a neutral law. If you're trespassing as a white person, and then you can be uh, thrown out of the restaurant. If you're trespassing as a black person. If it's only used, though, against one of the races, then it's not a neutral law. So in this case, everyone understood that this was not to provide the comfort, as it, that word was used in the law, the comfort of the passengers. It was not to make black people comfortable. It was to make white people comfortable by separating the black passengers from the white passengers. And the, the only dissenter in the case, when the case is decided, the only dissenter who was a Southerner who had once run for Congress as a slaveholding, uh, as, a, as a pro-slavery candidate, and had come from a slaveholding family, John Marshall Harlan of Kentucky, that that border state that didn't join the Confederacy, he called this argument a, a thin disguise. He said, you can say that you're creating equal accommodations, but we all know that, one, the cars aren't equal, and two, it's not meant to, to benefit both parties. It's only meant, meant to benefit the white, the white population. We talked about how there are many books on the subject. Of course, yours is different, but in, how would you describe the way it's different? Well, the books that have been written, and there's a very good book on the committee that brought the case called We as Free Men by Keith Medley. There's several biographies of Harlan. There's some biographies of Turgeet, Albion Turgeet, the, the lawyer for the Plessy team, a, a white northerner who had spent a lot of time in the South. Uh, but no one had told the story that I could find as a parallel narrative of the people who decide the case, the the two justices who are uh, one writing the majority decision, the other dissenting, the lawyers bringing the case, but without the resistors, the men and women of color who throughout the century are trying to beat back separation, and they bring legal cases, without those cases, there's nothing to decide. So I, I wanted to tell the story by going back and understanding the evolution of the contradictory characters, the two justices who end up in, if you were to bet who was going to vote in the majority and the, and the dissent, you would not bet that the Southerner from the slaveholding family would be the dissenter. And you wouldn't bet that Henry Billings Brown, the justice who writes the decision, would be born in New England in western Massachusetts and that he would end up as the leader of the majority. So I wanted to understand that. I wanted to understand Albion Trujet, who, who comes out of the North and goes to the South from 1865 to 1880 to North Carolina, determined to make the Union, as he put it, better than it was. Better than it was, in his view, meant equal rights. And those equal rights had to be cemented in the South, he felt. I have about 60 I, seconds. I to, Is there? Oh, sorry, go ahead. I'm just going to say, finally, I want to understand the resistors who, in the face of violence and intimidation, kept bringing these lawsuits. Okay. Uh, and is there a reason that this is uh, important to revisit at this time? Well, I, I think that race is our national conversation. We're either talking about it or not talking about it. And as a, as a reporter and editor for 40 years, I kept coming up against stories in which race was a major component, and yet I felt that I really didn't understand the roots of this. And you can see it every day in, in, the, in, in the 
immigration story, there's always a racial component that's discussed. In law enforcement and confrontations with police, there's a racial component that's, that's discussed. And we, we need to understand why people from uh, white people and black people, how they feel about, uh, about the way the country has evolved. And that's why I wanted to go back and find out about the roots of racial separation. Thanks, Steve. Steve Luxenberg, the author of Separate, the story of Plessy versus Ferguson and America's journey from slavery to segregation. We just missed you. You were in town in Boston a couple days ago, right? Recently. I, I was at the Massachusetts Historical Society. We had a great crowd and a very dreary night, yeah. uh, about, about 100 people. And uh, it, was, it was fun to talk because I had uh, the portrait of Senator Charles Sumner, that great senator who brought those civil rights acts into enactment, staring down at me while I was talking. So I felt that I was living history as I was talking. That is interesting. Now, next time you have, you know, when you get another book, maybe you'll be able to swing by the studio in person. Thanks very much for being up late with us tonight. Well, I was glad to be here. Thanks very much for talking with me. All right, Steve. That was another Jay Talking Podcast. If you loved what you heard, like and review the show. It helps others find us. Subscribe to the Jay Talking Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and never miss an episode. Follow me on Twitter for show updates. And as always, you can catch the show live every weeknight starting Sunday, midnight to five on WBZ Boston's News Radio. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.